Hello, you're tuned into the Uncle Nacho Show, and in this episode, I sat down with filmmaker and former human rights attorney Michelle Stevenson. This interview was recorded in November of 2017. Michelle Stevenson is committed to making personal human stories that are too often excluded from mainstream media. She is also a co-founder of the Brooklyn-based Rada Film Group. In part one of this interview, Michelle tells us of her upbringing and being of Panamanian and Haitian descent. She discusses the struggles of being an immigrant of color, her unconventional path toward filmmaking, and much more. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. All right, welcome back to another edition of the Uncle Nacho Show. We're here with Michelle Stevenson. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And thank you for hosting us in your home. Um, really a pleasure to be here. The way in which uh, we're connected is through Hatch Lab Project. Um, I had the honor of going to the one in Philadelphia where you were a mentor and presenter also in the one in New Orleans. And so seeing your presentation um, really informed me on the type of work that you're doing, the many projects I hope we get to touch upon um, that you've already done, that you're working on now. Could you kind of tell us a little bit of like early story of your migration story and maybe your introduction to film? Um, well, my migration story starts back in Haiti. My dad is from Haiti, is Haitian and my mother is Panamanian. And um, they were living in Haiti. Uh, we were living in Haiti when I was very young, um, but under kind of uh, very difficult conditions. Uh, Papa Doc uh, Duvalier had recently uh, come into power and he was consolidating his um, hegemony and tyranny. And so many people fled the country and we were part of a crew of exiles who fled um, my immediate family and extended family as well. My father left first and then we joined him uh, later and so um, emigrated to uh, New York initially, uh, Brooklyn then Queens, which is often the Haitian trajectory. Uh, Brooklyn, Queens, and some go to Long Island, others go to New Jersey uh, as they try to kind of move up the ladder. And some go to, you know, down to Florida. But um, but I had a whole other part of my extended family that also left for Canada, and we actually eventually um, joined them up there after uh, about nine years here in New York. So the migration journey, you know, I think as, as immigrants of color, the experience is kind of, um, it's a little schizophrenic. Um, you know, we came under conditions of duress and I think trauma. Um, we had members of our family who were arrested and uh, some who were tortured. Um, my father had been shot at in some demonstrations. And so we were fleeing that, uh, that space, but then arriving here confronted also um, another form of um, structural racism. Um, in a very kind of visceral way, especially my father who was darker skinned than my mother and um, was kind of the public face in terms of looking for apartments, trying to find a job and those kinds of things. And so while, you know, it was this idea of perhaps it was a haven, but at the same time we had to um, live with the consciousness that we were definitely, um, you know, uh, part of this second class immigrant community um, um, experience. Um, and so that's kind of what um, uh, informed my upbringing uh, from a political perspective. Um, at home, uh, there was a lot of discussion about um, human rights and oppression in Haiti. My father never really left the country mentally or sentimentally. And so um, it was a very kind of strong and vibrant Haitian community, often talking about how things could get better. 
um, but also very strong political conversations and um, decisions about politics and who to support or not to support and how to be present out there that were very much rooted in um, black pride and um, questions of anti-blackness and how we overcome that. Uh, my father was definitely very um, uh, grounded in that. And I, I talk about this in the presentation, but at the same time, we had this very political consciousness upraising around the public space. So there was definitely oppression from that perspective in terms of what I was able to do or not do. Questions of corporal punishment, I think, that also came from um, the nature of, of uh, I think, family life, certainly in Haiti, um, being in some ways fundamentally violent too because that's the way you raise kids. And also, you know, the wife needs to, and mother uh, has a role. So, um, so, so I had kind of this split kind of notions. I was like, okay, I, I can be, I have to be conscious here around, you know, uh, our rights as black folks um, and as immigrants of color and understanding that Haiti is the first, you know, um, the first and only successful slave revolt, you know, a black republic, but then, you know, uh, internally, these questions of gender and gender uh, oppression uh, were were very present, and so for me, it created a level of frustration that I felt um, that I'm, you know, that I've grappled with, and I think that developed a certain level of anger. Um, but the anger was twofold. The anger was about um, dealing in school with. Uh, um, with uh, taunting around uh, uh, questions of uh, racism, but then also at home being kind of like um, frustrated in what um, you know a woman was supposed to do. <laughs> so a uh, very high level of consciousness for me, I felt in terms of uh, understanding how things work and where our, our, where we fit in and the, na the notion of working hard, uh, always also that immigrant's sensibility around education being important, so my, my, my route to filmmaking is kind of a little circuitous. Um, I did work in the development space first, uh, international development, um, uh, did political science and international affairs, um, but always had an artistic eye, um, did photography, painted a little bit. My father was an amateur photographer, so that was kind of served as an inspiration. Uh, for me, um, but really felt the need to be grounded in, you know, academic, you know, <laughs> foundation and not really ready to take any kind of artistic leap. And so I became, um, I, I studied law also. I became an attorney um, and work mostly in human rights, in the human rights uh, space. I practiced corporate for a little bit of time, um, but then I met my husband before I entered law school after I did my work in international affairs and I was actually working in Africa with the United Nations and felt very disillusioned by that process and the level again of feeling like I'm just supporting a system that's extractive in nature and that's uh, not really in 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 interested in um, systemic change. And so I thought that maybe with a law degree um, I could um, hopefully have some tools to help shift that. And so when I came back to New York to go to uh, law school, that's where I met my, that's when I met my husband and partner who himself had taken a leap. He was a doctor and moved into filmmaking and kind of he introduced me more to that space. Um, but I continued to go to law school really bitten by the 
the bug of filmmaking um, one summer uh, when I went to a uh, human rights internship in Brazil to work with some uh, uh, Afro-Brazilian women's rights organization. I took a camera with me one summer and that was my kind of baptism by fire. I followed this uh, subject there um, who was a feminist uh, hip hop artist and did a short film on her, like from nuts to bolts, myself, and uh, didn't really want to look back, but I had two more years of law to do <laughs> and needed something to fall back on um, because, um, you know, uh, I'm right now, I, I don't have any parental, um, basically, I have to look after my parents, so, um, or my mother, because my father passed away. So I had to have some kind of financial backing, some kind of financial foundation before leaping into the film world after having invested really in a academic career, a career, you know, uh, an educational career that would hopefully give me some flexibility financially. So, um, so yeah, so that's how I ended up going to film, and it was kind of this gradual transition of law practice to get pay down some debt, buy a house, um, get some solidifi solid solidification financially, and then then switch to public interest law, which is more human rights related, because I was not going to stay in that corporate world. That was another place where you know the structural injustices, you know, on so many levels were just really uncomfortable. Uh, um, for me, and um, I was basically told quite quickly that I was not going to fit into that space, and I didn't want to. So, um, so that was about a two-year stint, and then gradually going into human rights law. I, I found a great moment of transition, which was with the, the Witness Project. I don't know if you know Witness. It's a program where they give cameras out. Well, I was there at the very beginning. There were only three of us. And we kind of started the program and built uh, over 90 partnerships where we were, you know, uh, providing cameras and training to document human rights violations. So it was kind of an intersection for me between the law and film. And then decided to take the leap from there and start um, um, making our own films. So we opened a, our own company, the Rada Film Group. Um, but we all, both of us, both my husband and I and partner Joe Brewster, we have a diversity of, of income streams <laughs> because, um, you know, the artistic filmmaking right now, we, we have not yet gotten, we're, we're very well versed in the, um, the space of um, developing our own projects and independent projects and how to get sources of funding to make those happen. But those things take a long time and they kind of have dips and swings up. Um, so we need something to help us stay sustainable and open. And right now it's a look outwards to find more kind of branded content work to help pay for the bills. But um, before that and still now, we do a number of other things that are not film related to keep the revenue stream going. Like I teach full time now, I purchase college. That is film related actually, because I, I teach film, um, documentary film. And um, and my husband actually still kind of practices a psychiatrist part time at uh, two different clinics in New York, one in Chinatown, um, where he has a very diverse uh, Asian population, another one that's um, I think substance abuse related um, uh, therapy and treatment. So that's how we kind of uh, um, you know try to make it work. I'm part of that kind of sandwich generation in terms of I have. Um, I have a, a, a one child who's still in school, so we have to provide for him. And then I have a mother who's, you know, 
past retirement and, um, you know, needs support. So, um, so, and then we still want to make film and have our voices out there at the same time. So, um, but yeah, that's a long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah, so. I was definitely going to get to the fact that you've been a human rights attorney before then, how that informed your filmmaking oh. as well. But I think, um, you know, since you provided that context and it's really in line kind of with the show, um, you know, it also for me going to Hatch Lab, which I'd like to ask you about, uh, in which, you know, it kind of helped me condense my mission statement of what this show is about. And I think that, um, and also just recently, you know, figuring out that, what, what I've been doing is that I focus on the artistry of self-determination, if you will. So maybe if you would like to kind of speak about, you know, yes, being a human rights attorney, becoming a filmmaker, but all in that time, you're exercising your artistry of self-determination and maybe what that means to you. And I'll also, if you'd like to touch upon like how your parents met, that'd be interesting. Oh, wow, that's but a big that, story. <laughs> what, um, what uh, can you tell me what, the mission of yeah. uh, your of your program is so the mission right now um, it's it's been condensed but I think we're sticking with this one for a while mm -hmm. is um, focusing on diverse people and their artistry of self determination yeah yeah well that's a big thing I mean I think for me I wouldn't be an artist if it wasn't about expressing um, expressing somehow my lived experiences through connections of people who are. Uh, part of the communities that I connect, that, that I'm a part of. And the idea of liberation, of the exercise of artistry as a process of liberation. That liberation is the process, right? Um, and um, I think Angela Davis, I mentioned that, that, that idea that liberation is in the struggle or freedom is in the struggle. So that that is part and parcel, you're not gonna get away from that. And the practicing the art form is a statement of resistance itself. And so, but that takes multiple, it, it, that happens at multiple um, levels um, for me. So when we say kind of uh, art as self-determination, I think for me it has to do with, I, I guess that my lived experience are front and, are, are center and key to how the art is practiced. So I don't know how to explain that, but, um, um, and there are multiple levels of that in terms of I need to be questioning myself at every point of the practice of filmmaking because it is a collaborative process. Um, questioning both my points of privilege but and my points of internalized oppression or internalized um, self-doubt. Um, in the process and be uh, conscious of it so I can push myself. And that allows me to grow as an artist, but I think it also allows me to contribute and exchange um, with the subjects I'm involved with in, in the documentaries that we uh, make. Um, so that there's a true exchange, hopefully at a more, you know, I'm all about this notion of for us, by us, and about us. But the us is very complicated, right? There's so many, the us is very diverse. And it's being able to embrace those complications, those conflicts, you know, um, and being open about them that I think we can really 
um, come to points of liberation and question how we've internalized a lot of the systemic narratives that have been kind of bombarded on us. So this sound, it's very heady what I'm saying, I guess. I'm not sure if I'm articulating in a very practical way, but I want the process to be as important as the end product as the end of the story itself. And for the process of making art, in this case, of storytelling that involves multiple people, um, that means being uncomfortable in my interactions, whether it's with a director of photography who may or may not be from the community we're telling the story to, whether it's with my subject who, who has a different lived experiences, although we may be from the same uh, community. Um, understanding my, my own light skin privilege and what doors that allows me to open and acknowledging that uh, in the exchanges I have with the subjects I'm involved with. And I think what that does is it gives me a lens into perhaps aspects of the stories that um, someone else may not have just by being open to that and leaning into uh, um, where I may feel most vulnerable. And I think that people talk a lot about impact, the impact of your film, where will that go? How will you change audience uh, things, audience uh, reaction? In some ways, the only thing you can really, control is not even the word, but help transform are the individual relationships that you're involved with in the process. You know, sometimes it's in some cases making long-term friends uh, with some of your subjects, but that hopefully by the exchange that you're having with the people involved in the stories that you tell, um, there's some form of individual transformation that takes place for everyone involved. But also, and I think that's where it gets problematic, and that's, I think, um, I want the stories that I tell to be disruptive. And what I mean by that is, while we invest in the process too, the end of the film, the statement at the end of the story has got to somehow disrupt the system and disrupt it sometimes in a positive way, whether it's about you know, positive um, and complicated characters. Sometimes it's about questioning and pushing the audience to be uncomfortable. And when I mean uncomfortable, I don't mean making them cry and feeding into their guilt, right? that's not what our storytelling is about. It's not that there won't be necessarily be crying in the film, but it's about understanding you have their full, you know, complicated people involved in pushing systemic issues. The stories sometimes have more gray than black and white, and we have to embrace the gray areas to be able to, you know, truly try to not just understand each other, but really even understand how the system really works that those gray areas are sometimes are what um, keep um, systemic injustice afloat. So it also means taking a critical look at ourselves, you know? And I think by taking a critical look at ourselves and our subjects, we are really complicating our humanity. Thing is that how do we complicate that in a way that allows us to understand that ambivalence and then see, well, how do we go beyond it? Anyway, so that's where we try to kind of fall in some of the stories that we tell. Um, and I think also for us, representation is key. I love being with characters that I can show, hopefully, if they allow, you know, 
um, show their full complicated nature, which means their flaws and good parts of their personalities, because it's only when we embrace all of that that we are truly kind of pushing against stereotypes that we have internalized about each other. So I don't necessarily agree with the notion of positive, quote unquote, role models. I think it's important that we have, you know, subjects and characters that run the gamut, you know, because we're all so different and complicated, but that we won't get to our real humanity without seeing the, you know, kind of the flip side, the darker side of who we are. And it doesn't mean necessarily highlighting that, but understanding that, yeah, we're human beings. We're not, you know, and I think it's important even for younger people to be able to see that, whether it's our kids or what, you know, and for us to engage in that conversation so, um, you know, we can understand each other in a more complicated way and not necessarily make assumptions and then sometimes not be disappointed because we hear certain things, you know, about, about people when we're all people trying to struggle, struggling to figure out how to be our best selves in some ways, but also how to figure out life. So I'm very invested in, as we build character in our stories, I'm in conversations now with my editor in terms of like, you know, no holes barred on the, on the full, you know, representation of the characters from their flawed aspects to their most, you know, their better selves too. And it makes for a better story too, I think. <laughs> so my, my parents, how they met, it's a little complicated. There's some secrets in my family that some of my family members are not too happy to discuss, but um, my grandmother was a sex worker um, from Panama, and my grandmother, actually, my mother, um, grew up in Cartagena, Colombia, um, partially uh, in a bordello in that space. And um, my grandmother kind of traveled all over the Caribbean doing that job, and then landed in Haiti, um, and found someone there, who she ended up kind of, um, you know, becoming his partner. And then sent for my mother when she was a teenager. She left my mother in uh, Colombia and Cartagena uh, to live with uh, a family. And when she had settled, my grandmother settled in Haiti, she had her come. And that's how my mother ended up in, in, in Haiti at uh, 15 and then met my father later um, in her like late teens, early 20s um, while she was living there. And that's how... That's how they met. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the exact circumstances of how they met. I think it was through mutual friends. Um, but that's how she ended up there. People wonder, well, how did someone from Panama end up in Haiti? I said, well, back in the day, um, you know, uh, my grandmother was uh, in the red light district in in uh, in Haiti, and so um, there was a lot of you know controversy when my parents sort of um, decided to marry. Um, you know, family. Uh, pressure. My family comes from kind of this middle class Haitian family, so there were a lot of kind of questions around that. Some people for and against it. <laughs> so anyway, but that's uh, that's kind of in a nutshell. I would love to do a story about my mother's and uh, my grandmother's life because I think it's very much um, an example of the Latina female experience, certainly of that generation. Um, both my mother and my grandmother. Um, my mother was a domestic, was a child domestic for for a while, 
um, um, when my grandmother abandoned her for a good period of time before she came to get her. Um, and so, you know, all of that kind of feeds into also, like I talk a lot about the notion that for me, you know, the legacy of, um, you know, genocide, slavery, colonialism really float through my veins. And it's kind of very personal and it's part of the private family life as well. So it's not something that's far, it's something that's in me and part of me whether it's looking at the color politics of Haiti or of part of the larger Caribbean and how in some ways um, even my grandmother as a sex worker sort of used her color to move up the ladder. But at the same time, you know, the suffering that my mother went through uh, coming from a very poor village in Panama, what the class struggles that exist in Latin America are mean for women. Yeah, so all of that is part of me, and I think that history is very present. Um, and when we tell stories, um, that's what comes out. And I think the more we are conscious of it, the more we can use that history and how it's shaped us in a very strategic and, um, but also kind of respectful way. I mean, I know you've mentioned filmmaking as therapy, and so I don't know if, you know, you want to, connect that to how you got connected to Hatch Lab, but also just kind of going back on some of the, what you've talked about in your presentation, um, you know, we f focus on the white male gaze and counter to that the importance of reclaiming our own perspective as filmmakers of color. And, and this uh, notion that I really resonates with me is the like vulnerability as a source of power. Yeah. Well, this very story that I was talking to you about in terms of the vulnerability part, my mother and my grandmother, um, there was so much shame that, that uh, surrounded that lived experience about she and my mother uh, went through. Uh, there was no, uh, there were so many lies. There was no discussion of it because it was seen as something that made us less than humans, right? And so I really wanted to flip that script um, and the notion that, no, it's actually the opposite. It's a, it's a symbol of resistance and using the system to, your, to, to try to get to where you need to get, you know? And being able to see it from that perspective of empowering, but we don't all, it's part of that internalized oppression thing, like we don't want to talk about it. We are ashamed of it because somehow dominant culture says that's not the right path or that's the bad path, when actually it's the path that we manipulate because we need to and that's the source of strength. That means we have the smarts to be able to analyze and figure out this is the way I need to go. So that's what I mean in terms of uh, vulnerability as a source of power because otherwise, we are supporting the system by believing in our shame, right? Believing in our shame disempowers us, you know, uh, um, from being able to question and understand that the locus of injustice is not in my not studying hard enough, you know, or my not being the model, you know, uh, immigrant of color. The source of power comes from questioning you know, those forces that are stopping me from being able to, to be the best person that I can be. Um, I think it's Ta-Nehisi Coates who says that true equality will come when I can be as mediocre as the white man, <laughs> you know, 
who uh, whose doors whose doors are open for him, you know. And there's a lot of discussion now around the the role of uh, white male filmmakers, and I would say white female filmmakers too, in documentary, in terms of telling the story of the other. And a lot is starting to is being written to kind of assuage the guilty feeling now because things are being uncomfortable, we're questioning a lot of things and saying that, oh no, my intentions are sincere when I go into a community and I make sure to kind of engage and have these conversations and that, you know, but for me, that's not where the locus is. It's not individual, you know. Um, it's really about questioning the power questioning the power that exists both in the relationship with the subject that the that acknowledging the power relationships in that individual exchange but understanding the power that's allowed them to go into this community um, and and we see the the vacuum also in this sense of well why aren't there more stories about you know well there are but I'm just saying um, why aren't why aren't white filmmakers t saying more stories about their communities and questioning it there and questioning things in that space um, and the idea of and the idea that empathy somehow justifies it is really not enough it's not about empathy it's about power and that we've been you know I show that slide of Nanook of the North to to uh, cartel land to explain that, have things really changed in terms of how we tell and who gets to tell what story and how those stories are constructed. And um, in some ways, that's why we haven't really uh, achieved some systemic, a systemic shift because we haven't really questioned the foundations of the narratives that are built. Um, and we are in a battle of narratives right now. And the question is, are we gonna blow this up and create, uh, I don't want to say new, but different approaches to the narrative that are not just inclusive, but empowering, because inclusivity is not even, I mean, I'm even getting over that. It's like, it's not, it's not even about that necessarily, but that being given the space or having the space to uh, tell the stories that we want to tell, um, I think uh, is part of kind of the, you know, pushing the envelope. So I really kind of push up against this whole question of allyship and even saying empathy and solidarity. You know, those are all kind of great, but the question, this is what I like to ask, is that you must ask yourself, why am I telling this story? Why? am I telling this story? It's not to say that you can't, but why are you telling it? And ultimately, we all have kind of a selfish objective that we need to kind of come to terms with, whether it's about knowing more about yourself in this particular space, or what is it that I'm achieving through that? And once I am true to myself about the why I'm doing it, then kind of doesn't really matter what community you're in. But don't come with this kind of sense of altruism or sense of being, or, or giving or that there is an equal exchange because there's not. And what are you going to do with that story that provides hopefully a systemic shift 
and the whole notion of investing in the exchange that you know transformation and impact actually happens in process, not so much at the end product. And the process is that notion, that process of therapy, I think, of uh, revealing your vulnerability, accepting the other's vulnerability, and finding points of uh, connection there. But uh, maybe it's because I've, I've lived with a psychiatrist for so long <laughs> that I've been pushed also to, um, um, to question myself at each point of the process that I think has made it richer um, and hopefully more inviting also for others to, to express themselves. Um, but it's hard because, you know, I think there's certain cultures also where it's a lot easier to, well, people become more open more quickly. Um, I'm doing a piece in the Dominican Republic and the women I've worked with are so stoic. They're so stoic trying to get to that point a vulnerability requires a lot of work <laughs> because they've created all these layers of protection because they're getting hit all the time. As um, uh, these are mostly Dominican of Haitian descent, women who are Dominicans of Haitian descent who you know face racism on a on a daily basis, have multiple burdens, live very fragile economically, and so I come in with this my own notions of uh, of how I survive around um, racism and discrimination and trying to peel the layers that they have built to protect themselves is, is very difficult. Um, I hope I've gotten to some points because I think it's when we get through that, that again, I think even for them potentially, hopefully, it leads to you know, um, a, a level of, uh, for them, potentially maybe less stress or, or, or seeing the world a little bit uh, differently or even creating more uh, sense of connectedness to each other through um, the, the, the revelation. But, um, but I, I was able to interpret that stoicism or that, those levels of layers because I've questioned myself you know, in the process. And also, it's something that I'm not sure 30 years ago would I have been able to see it see it that way. You know, the the angry young woman that I was, maybe would not have seen it in the same way, or or been more protective too with certain layers, uh, as well, um, and closer to my anger than I am now. Like I can see it and feel it now, and channel it. Right. Some of the other notes I have is just you know from your presentation is. You talk about how trust is necessary in order to collaborate. Mm -hmm. You've already talked about kind of this complicating the narrative, but also um, kind of interested in maybe having you elaborate on who will win the battle of these narratives, um, structure through process, channeling emotion, and what fuels action and change. Um, a quote, yeah. Well, I think this whole idea you mentioned about self-determination and the battle of the narrows is, is for me, I think um, with the stories that we develop, it's really, a, and, and we see it in the results from the film we made with American Promise, um, the exposure of our vulnerability and turning that into a powerful story. Um, we know that there's an audience that we connect to because that audience is us. We are the audience as well as the storytellers. So we know our audience. The question is, let us get to our audience, right? You know, give us the opportunity to make those connections, create the channels to audiences that are not necessarily um, accessible because of how, you know, 
distribution spaces work, although I think through YouTube and other ways, means of distribution and platforms, it's made it a lot easier, but you still need kind of funding and support to get to your audience. So I think the battle narratives is more about accessing the audience that you know is there um, and building on that audience and being able to get have the tools to build that audience. And then it'll be a feedback loop. Like I know that the people who watched American Promise are going to want to see the other films that we've done, that we're doing, and that um, the specific people who are in the films that we make will be the audience also for our film because it's speaking to that and, and beyond and then create transformation on that level because I think the idea of transformation and, and the power of narrative is that I see myself, it's not the empathy, I mean I think the empathy is important, but it's about I see myself in this story. I see myself in that character. I connect to that character and it's and you know and how that character is represented and therefore you know that character is me and whatever that character is going through um, I understand and maybe when I go home um, there are things that I can change in my life around the struggles that I've witnessed so it's this circularity I feel it's not linear, it's, it's circular. The impact of narrative and how it works, you know, and, uh, and the power of it. And I think in essence, I think we're coming to realization of that as a species, might be too late, of understanding, you know, that the world works in a circular way, not in a linear fashion. And that was part one of my interview with Michelle Stevenson. Stay tuned for part two later this month when Michelle provides more context to past projects and details of what we can expect to see from the most recent film shoots and travels. This is Uncle Nacho signing off, and I'll speak to you again soon. <laughs>